to join us and be our, our speaker for today. Jonathan, you're a PhD student and uh, grateful that uh, you're doing your ministry there even as a student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, majoring in Old Testament, archeology, span and Near, East, Near Eastern history. You did your MA in Wheaton College in Biblical Archeology span from 2013 to 2015, of which you attended here. So it's kind of like a homecoming, a reunion of sorts, and grateful that you're here and that your mother is here as well to join us. Can I have a word of prayer Absolutely. with you? Lord, we're grateful that you are our God and you've brought us together to worship and fellowship and to lift you up. Lord, we, we pray that our worship here would bring a smile to your heart and grateful that you have already blessed in Jonathan's life and be with the, the message that uh, has brought, being brought to us here today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Always glad to be with you guys. Does indeed feel much like a homecoming, as this was my church home for those years. Right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, and the darkness faced. These words, opening Genesis, carried a very powerful image to anyone first reading or hearing it. This this image, this scene of this wild and waste, formless and void, chaos, waters of chaos, was where every creation story started. From Egypt to Mesopotamia to Greece, everyone started the universe here. And out of chaos, the gods would come out and form and shape and in the same image, into the same moment, our story begins. God coming to these waters of chaos, this nothingness that so many people feared. And he begins to create. Let there be light. And there is. And in that moment, God creates time. Light, dark, day, night. Time brings order. After all, we all order our lives very much by time. We wake at certain times, we eat at certain times, we work out at certain times, or some of us probably should do more of that than others. We go to work, we sleep. Our lives are dictated by the patterns and rhythms of the seasons, light, dark, day, night. Order is beginning to be shaped out of chaos. And so the creation week continues. God speaks, and things happen. Waters from waters are separated. Land appears. Vegetation, the sun, moon, and stars. Birds, fish, then animals. Order out of chaos. And as God goes through, he specifically names things, giving them purpose, identity, function. Sky, sea, land, plant, animal, bird, fish, sun, moon, stars. Formlessness, wild and waste, chaos, in six days has now been shaped 
into a harmonious, complete whole. Order from chaos. But God's not quite done yet. In this moment, now comes the crown jewel of his creation. The purpose for which he had been working all of this towards. A from which he cannot just simply speak it into existence. It's too important for that. And so God declares, let us make man in our image after our likeness as the triune God comes with his hands into the dirt and dust of the earth and begins to form a shape. Two arms, two legs, a head, a torso. And then God bends down and breathes into that dusty image the breath of life, the divine life spark that gives life to all living things. And in that moment, the image, the man, becomes a living soul. Only half the human equation. God takes from that man a rib from his side and once again forms another shape, similar to the first, yet distinct, individual, and different. And once again, he breathes in that breath of life and she becomes a living soul. Male and female, man and woman, two parts of a singular humanity, two distinct, unique individuals, one created. Taken from the rib, not from the foot nor the head, equal partners in the task that God had set for them. For God said, let us make man and kind, to be a better translation in our image, after our likeness. And so he did. Male and female, he created them. Create people. Why did he make us? Something special about humanity that God had in mind. And we see that right at the beginning with Adam. First man. The first thing that God Adam to him, or brings all the animals there to Adam. I want you to name them. Well, why would God do that? Well, again, what was God's, what was the functional thing that God was doing when he was creating? He was naming things. You see, in the ancient mind, something did not exist just because it had physical form. It needed a name. A name was a thing's identity. It gave it function and purpose. So without names, things basically did not exist. Therefore, when God asked Adam to name the animals, God was asking Adam to take an active role in creation. God had left creation intentionally incomplete. He created us to partner with him in creating the world. He wanted us to join in the joy of creation, to fashion this world into something amazing and special. And as he had given all living things the power of procreation, this is a creation that theoretically would never end. We would continue to name and order, fashion and shape this world, partnering with God in the joy of creation. This is why God made us, 
This is what it means to be in the image of God. The very things God uses to define that image. Exercise dominion. Be fruitful and multiply. To name. That's all creative language. God made us special partners in creation. This is what we put on this earth for, put on this earth to do. But there was one catch to that creation. In order for us to be effective partners in creation, God needed to give us a very special superpower. Power he didn't give any other creature. The power to choose. God didn't want robots. He didn't want automatons programmed to perform a specific task. He wanted creativity. He wanted innovation. He wanted beings that could think as his partners. That could develop and create on their own. So that he could share in that joy with them. And for that to be a reality, we need the power to choose. As much bad press as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil gets, the truth is that was not the first command God gave to not eat from that tree. It was actually the last command he gave to Adam and Eve. The first command was to be fruitful and multiply. They could have chosen not to. He also commanded that they exercise dominion over the earth. They could have chosen to sit back and let chaos reign. He commanded Adam, and probably to a degree Eve as well, to name the animals. They could have let the animals try to name themselves. God gave several commands, all of which Adam and Eve could have said no to. And that is why the tree of knowledge of good and evil was so important. It was a testament, a symbol of choice. A rem constant reminder that God was not forcing them to be anything, to do anything. Yes, he had made Adam and Eve with a particular purpose, a particular function, where which by fulfilling that purpose and function, they would live to their fullest potential. But they had the choice to do anything else. And that's what the tree of knowledge good and evil was about. It was a testament test of God's love and God's trust in his creations. It may seem like a silly test to not eat from one particular tree, but that's part of the point. It was a very simple thing. They just simply had not to do because they always were to be reminded they had the power to choose their own path. Now, there would be consequences if they did. If they had chosen not to procreate, there would have been very negative consequences. If they had chosen to uh, not exercise dominion, there would have been consequences to that as well. They would have been deviating from their designed function and purpose. And for any of us who have driven a car or really used any sort of technology, when you start using a piece of technology for something other than its de design purpose, uh, it tends not to go well. But this was the choice Adam and Eve always had before them. Now most of us 
know how that story goes. Obviously, we're sitting here in this particular circumstance. It's very different than how we pictured the Garden of Eden. But think of the serpent's words to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Figure out why they fell. That's, a, that's almost a question than how, or that they fell at all, is why. Did God really say you shouldn't eat of that tree? Are you sure about that? Okay, so fine, God did, maybe did say that, but you won't die? Look at me. I seem to be doing quite well. And I'm hanging out in its branches. And you just said, God said, don't even touch it. God's not telling you the truth. For God knows that when you eat of that tree, you will become like him. God's holding you back. He's keeping you down. God's been lying to you. The serpent's words were designed to sow seeds of doubt and distrust in the minds of Adam and Eve. To break this peace and harmony that they had had with, with each other and with God. You see, one of the most important things we have to understand about the Garden of Eden is the last verse of Genesis 2. For the man and his wife were naked and they knew no shame. It may seem strange to us. It probably is very strange to us. After all, being naked is something that we consider very shameful. And certainly in the ancient world, it was considered extremely shameful. To expose someone's nakedness was a great violation of trust and decency. You think of the sexual laws in Leviticus 20, particularly those pertaining to sexual relations with family members, which can be summed up with the word don't. But it's described specifically as exposing each relative's nakedness, exposing their shame, their weakness. It's a violation of decency, dignity, and trust. Similarly, God and the prophets, particularly Hosea and Ezekiel and Jeremiah as well, threaten using the parable of Israel as an uh, adulterous wife, threatens to expose her nakedness by stripping her from a way of all the fine jewelry, the nice clothes, the makeup, the perfume, all of that, so that she is exposed and naked before her lovers. Shame, vulnerability, weakness, helplessness. This is what being naked means in the ancient mind, and it's much of the same for true for us. When you think of a soldier, no soldier's going to battle naked. You're not going to last too long. Yet, in Genesis 2, the man and his wife are naked, and they know no shame. Why? Because there's nothing to be afraid of. There's no vulnerability in being naked. They're perfectly happy and comfortable with who God made them. And they're perfect and ha happily comfortable with who God made the other person. There was no judgment. There was no criticism. There was no disdain. And therefore, there was no fear and no shame. They were at perfect harmony and peace. What the Hebrew word shalom means. Shalom means more than just absence of conflict. It means wholeness, soundness, completeness. Things are as they ought to be. 
This shalom is the world Adam and Eve were put in. And it's a world where they could easily, comfortably be naked with each other and be perfectly comfortable. Absolute harmony, absolute trust, absolute faith in each other and in their creator. And that shalom starts to fragment as they listen to the words of the serpent. Until finally, those seeds of doubt grow and they choose to walk their own path away from God. That act of faithlessness, and it is an act of faithlessness, shattered the shalom. It's what we theologians call sin. You know, one of the things that drives me nuts is when people say that faith is belief in the absence of evidence. That's not faith. That's just being stupid. Faith is belief because of the evidence. Throughout the Bible, in fact, the whole point of the Bible is that God gives people tons and tons and tons and tons of evidence that he is exactly who he says he is, that he exists, and he's there for us. And yet people still often just do their own thing. Now, there are plenty of stories in the Bible of people who actually did faithfully follow God, who believed the evidence God gave them and lived accordingly. And there's a lot of examples where they didn't. Adam and Eve had more evidence than anyone in the history of this planet. They were in a planet literally bursting at the seams with evidence of God's goodness, love, and care for them. And yet, despite quite literal mountains of evidence, they lost faith. And so they fell. And again, in that moment, the shalom was shattered. The core root of their sin was distrusting God. And once that distrust seeped in, it spread to them each other. They started to distrust each other. They felt shame at being naked. They felt the need to cover up because they weren't so sure of the other person anymore. For the first time, they felt fear. It's a very short, very green, yet very wise philosopher once said, fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. And all around them, Adam and Eve watched that very thing play out. Their fear drove them to hide and cover up from each other with fig leaves and hide from God in bushes. Their fear bled into anger as they began blaming each other for why they're suddenly in this terrifying situation. That anger turned into hatred towards God as they blamed him for all their problems. The serpent you made tricked me. The woman you made gave me the fruit and I ate. God, you are the problem here. A simple moment of distrust very quickly bloomed into outright rebellion against the creator God. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. And indeed, suffering is humanity's only legacy. Everywhere you look, every when you look, 
there's nothing but suffering. Suffering caused by us. We fear each other. We fear what others might take from us, what might do to us. So we hoard wealth. We hoard power in efforts to protect ourselves against others. Fear, anger, jealousy very quickly turn into theft, rape, murder. Marriage, that sacred, amazing institution God created, where two people become one, a reflection of the Trinity itself. How quickly was that turned into a marketplace where women were bought and sold like cattle, and sometimes even less than cattle, for political gain, for wealth gain of the men? Think of how women have been abused throughout history. In many cultures, even some still today, girls are of so little value that they are literally tossed in the streets and the sewers as soon as they're born. One of the excavations I worked at in Ashkelon is famous for the baby drain. 200 infant skeletons found in the sewer. Marriage and procreation, the two things God gave us, turned into this. And as societies have grown, it's only gotten worse. We decide that there's a them and an us. And them, they're different. They look different from us. They talk different from us. They think different from us. Therefore, they must be bad. We fear them. Then we get angry at them. We start to hate them. And then we make them suffer. We look throughout history. It's empires conquering. Colonization. Slavery. And of course, the creme de la creme. Genocide. If you think that violence is new in the media, that violence in movies is something new, I can assure you it's not. From the very first cave paintings to the Egyptian temple art to Mesopotamian epics and Greek literature through the Middle Ages all the way down to today's movies, violence has always and ever been the theme of humanity in art. It's always about killing, destruction, and power. We have idolized the weapons and means of destruction. Our technological crown jewel very well might be the nuclear bomb. The, very th the thing that has given us the power to render this planet lifeless and uninhabitable. This is humanity's greatest achievement. Even religion hasn't been saved. Religion has become always about manipulation and control of forces beyond our understanding. Pagan religions will personify the forces of nature, whether fertility or, or weather, the earth itself. And then try to offer sacrifices to them in a way of getting control over them. It's not about serving God. It's about controlling God. I give God grain, the fertility God or goddess grain, and as a result, my wife has healthy babies and I have good strong crops and my life is good. This is the great symbiosis that's the basis of every pagan religion. And don't think for a second Christianity has been exempt. So much of Christianity today, particularly, 
follows the insidious prosperity gospel, where I follow Jesus, and therefore I am healthy and wealthy. Everything is about control and power. And all stems from fear. This is sin. This is what sin has done to us. It all stems from the fact, the ultimate result of what sin is. God told us that if we sin, if we break faith with him, if we reject him, we will die. Romans says that the wages of sin is death. And the last enemy destroyed in Revelation, the lake of fire, is death itself. Death is the end result of sin, but what is death? Well, God himself gives a definition in Genesis 3. From the dust you were taken, so to the dust you shall return. Ecclesiastes says that, uh, more clearly, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit, or breath, returns to God who gave it. Elihu, in the book of Job, gives a frightening vision of God's power when he says that should God choose, he could gather to himself his spirit and his breath and then all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. The psalmist says it most clearly. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. Remember how we were put together in the beginning? Dust, breath, living being. Sin, with its ultimate end being death, is creation backwards. It's the separation of those two elements. We were taken from nothing. God started creation from nothing. From nothingness, that chaos and void, formlessness. Ordered it into something. He took us from dust and the divine life spark and made us something. Sin is that in reverse. It takes whatever God has made and tears it apart. It rips us to nothingness. And that is a path that we are all inexorably on. There is no avoiding it. There is no getting out of it. We can delay it maybe a few years, but that's it. We're all going to die. We're all going to become absolutely nothing, as if we never were. That terrifies us. Is that a fear? Is at the root of all the suffering we have inflicted. In truth, God should have destroyed us. He should destroy us now. All we're good for, instead of being the partners in creation he made us to be, all we are now is agents of this very world's destruction. That's it. And yet, God hasn't destroyed us. He won't destroy us. Because God held on to that vision of Eden. He held on to it tightly. And instead of looking at us as a lost cause, instead of looking at us as something that some as people who are just good for nothing but destruction and suffering, God believed that he could overcome sin. The anti-God, the very opposite of what God is. He believed deep in his being 
that he could rescue us, that he could fix what we had broken. He knew that we couldn't fix it. Only God can stand up to the anti-God. And if you think about it, sin has the power to destroy what God has made. That puts it pretty close to the level of God and power. And there's no way any of us are going to stand up to that kind of power. But God can. Or at least he's the only one who could try. And so instead of leaving us to our fate, instead of letting us destroy ourselves, or simply getting it over with and wiping us clean, God instead decided that he was going to fix us. That he was going to take sin on himself and beat it. Or at least try. And so, God in the person of Jesus came. He came to show us what it means to be human. Jesus is by far the most human person who's ever lived. Because unlike any, any other person in the history of humanity, Jesus actually lived the way people were meant to live. He faced the same temptation as Adam. He faced the same question as Adam. Give in to your weakness. Give in to your fear. Trust yourself and distrust God. And those starving in the desert alone, Jesus instead embraced the weakness instead of fighting it and completely surrendered himself to the Father. Instead of embracing fear, he embraced trust. And in that moment, set himself on a different course, a course away from suffering. And so he spent the next three and a half years showing us what it means again to be human. He confronted oppression. He confronted suffering. He brought a little shalom everywhere he went. Whether it was healing the sick or raising the dead or simply offering kindness to the downtrodden, lifting up the suffering, defending the oppressed. That's what Jesus did. There's a story where the disciples of a man named John, uh, Jesus' pre- uh, kind of forerunner, came to him and said, uh, so are you this savior guy we've been told to expect or should we be looking for somebody else? And Jesus doesn't give them an answer. Instead, he says, follow me. And for the next few days, they follow him around. And then Jesus says, okay, what did you see? Sick are healed, the blind see, the deaf hear. The oppressed are set free. The suffering are helped. The dead are raised. Go back and tell John what you saw. Because this is what the kingdom of heaven is about. This is what I am trying to save you from. A life that only leads to you causing suffering to anyone else. Because lest we think that we're innocent in this, we are not. It's very easy to look at Ted Bundy or Nazis and say, bad, shouldn't do that. Yet how many of us are guilty of the same crimes? How many of us have lied, stolen, bullied, 
gaslighted someone, intimidated, threatened, manipulated, all to get what we want, all to gain the power we want. When you compare that to what the Nazis or Ted Bundy did, is it really qualitatively different or simply quantitatively different? Is what separates us from being a serial killer or a genocidal maniac a lack of capability on our part? Or is it that we simply lack the means to do so? We have to be honest. Truth is, deep down, we're all Nazis. We've all committed the same crime, just on a much smaller scale. We're no better. Yet Jesus was. Jesus showed us there is an end to this cycle. There is an out. Yet there was one still big problem to remain. Well, two, really. One, the root of our fear, root of our, our sin is our fear. Our fear of death, our fear of being torn apart into nothingness, and there's nothing we can do to stop that. And of course, the other issue is that we all deserve punishment. Again, if we're all Nazis, we kind of deserve to be punished like Nazis. And it may seem incongruous for a, a loving God to demand punishment for crimes, for our sins. Yeah, how could a loving God do, do elsewise? After all, if God loves us, loves all of us, not just me, then anything I do to another one of God's loved beings is going to hurt him. All the crimes I have committed hurt him. Multiply that by however many billions of people there have been in the past few thousand years. How could God not be in pain? How could God not demand justice for the crimes we have committed against his children, his creations? I mean, how many of you parents, when somebody does something to your child, don't get angry, don't get hurt? That anger, that love, that comes, or that comes from love. Not all anger is necessarily evil. That pain that we have caused demands justice, yet none of us could pay it and still be a member of God's kingdom. Another reason God couldn't, of course, allow it is if he did nothing, he would simply validate it. If you do nothing in the face of misery and oppression and suffering, you are validating that oppression. Do we want God to say that the Holocaust was okay? Do we want God to say that Hiroshima and Nagasaki were okay? Slavery was okay? I certainly hope not. Our, so our crimes demand punishment. But instead of punishing us, God punished himself in the person of Jesus. On that cross, Jesus took the wrath of God. Let it pour over him. Let thousands of years of crime and misery just let all out. 
so that now God can say, what you did was not okay. What happened to you was not okay. But I can still welcome you in. And as the wrath of God poured out on Jesus, on the cross, he took on the full force of sin. Every sin from the garden to the lake of fire slammed into Jesus full force. God and anti-God, warring for supremacy, creator and uncreator, in a cosmic conflict that I don't think any of us can truly comprehend. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he had only one choice to save us. He had to let sin win. And so he did. He let sin run its course through him, tear him apart, and kill him. And in that moment, with a scream, the creator, the word of God made flesh, was reduced to nothing. He had no choice. He couldn't simply fend sin off. That would have been nothing more than a stalemate. He had to let sin run its course. Because he had to answer the question, can what sin has unmade be remade? Can it be remade as the same, yet whole and complete, no longer subject to sin's power? It's easy to create something new, but it's a lot harder to recreate something whole and complete. I mean, if we took a, a vase and smashed it, we can glue it back together, but it's still broken. How many of us can take that smashed vase and make it whole and complete as if it had never been broken. This was the challenge that faced Jesus. Can he take something that's been torn apart, smashed to pieces, and make it, put it back together again, whole, complete, as if it had never once been broken? And this is the question the rest of the universe wanted the answer to as Jesus lay in that tomb. As they waited and waited. As the creator God of the universe lay dead. And then. heart began to beat again. Life surged through Jesus once again as he took on that divine life spark, that divine breath once again. And he stood whole, complete, perfect and sinless. Not as he had been three days before when he had died, yet still the fundamentally the same Jesus. He was resurrected, not reanimated like others had been, Lazarus and Dorcas, Jairus' daughter, the widow named son, they were reanimated, but they weren't resurrected. Sin still 
held onto them and still tore them apart. So far as I know, they all died. They were still subject to sin. They just merely got a brief reprieve. But not so with Jesus. Jesus was whole, complete. In him was the true shalom. He was humanity as it ought to have been. No longer mortal. No longer in any way subject to death. He had been remade as we ought to have been. He was still fundamentally the same person, the same Jesus, yet completely new at the same time. The mystery and paradox of the resurrection. And in that moment, he stood totally victorious over sin. He could and would remake everything that sin had destroyed, including you and me. He had already forgiven us. He had already paid whatever penalty we owed. And so now he simply offers to us his resurrection. And with it, the power to defeat sin here and now. To break the cycle of fear, anger, hate, and suffering. The inevitability of death is what drives all of our suffering. Yet who cares anymore? Death has no power. Sin has no power. This is what the resurrection means. And the beautiful thing is we don't have to wait till Jesus comes back to make the earth new to live in the power and might of the resurrection. We live it here and now. Heaven peace on earth, or the shalom restoration, it starts here and now. Eternal life, it starts now. Do we see suffering and oppression in this world? Absolutely. What are we doing about it? Jesus showed us what it means to be human, to confront oppression, to confront suffering, to offer healing everywhere we find it. Can we do it all on our own? No. But we can do something in this little corner to restore the shalom that God intended. Once again, we can be the partners in recreation he made us to be. This is what Revelation 21 and 22 is all about. It's the restoration of the earth at the end. Where God dwells with his people. Where there's a tree, but it's all there for the healing of the nations, the healing of the suffering we've caused. There's no more pain, no more death, none of it. But that starts now. What do we have to be afraid of anymore? What fear do we hold on to that keeps us from facing sin and all its consequences in the world we live in today? What's the worst that could happen to us? We die? Who cares? Death is conquered. And with death, the power of sin. This is what it means to believe in the resurrection. This is what it means to be saved. It's not about streets of gold. It's not about even living forever. 
It's about living free of the fear of death, free of the fear of sin. Belief, whole and complete, that God is so much stronger, so much more powerful than anything sin can throw at us. And that salvation doesn't wait till the second coming. It starts now. So that when Jesus does come back, he will find a people ready for the new world he will create. So now, go out. Live in the power of the resurrection. Face the suffering you see in the world. Face the oppression. And be that agent of recreation God made you to be. Bring shalom to each little corner you find yourself in. And so when people look at you and wonder who you are, you can simply tell them, sit down, my friend, and let me tell you a story. <laughs>